It's great treat to be with you uh, tonight and uh, this morning as well, and a great privilege to see the uh, summer interns uh, that are here and uh, being raised up in answer to our prayers. I said this morning that um, I first met Rowan when I was uh, his, he came across with a bunch of students from Moore College uh, in about 2006, I think, and he was in first year, and uh, I was down to interview him one Sunday night, so that's when I first met him, and uh, he mentioned he was possibly keen to come to New Zealand, and uh, so we prayed about that and so on, and it's a great answer to prayer to see uh, the Hillstons coming here, more workers for the harvest field being raised up, and then um, many more that we've seen tonight, and uh, it's just a reminder of just how powerful uh, God is, and uh, if you had have sort of said back then in 2006 what's gone on and happened since, I don't think many would have believed it, and uh, who knows what might happen in another 15 years from uh, the people we've seen before us tonight. So let's come before God and pray and ask that we would understand his word to us tonight. Father in heaven, it's amazing that we can come and just speak to you as the sovereign Lord who rules the entire universe. Father, you are the Lord of the harvest field. It's your harvest field and you know how to harvest it. We praise you for sending a great and glorious shepherd for, uh, for us to follow. And uh, we do thank you so much for raising up workers for your harvest field and pray you'll keep doing that. Father, we pray for ourselves tonight as we hear from your word. Please give each of us uh, integrity and humility that we would listen carefully to what you uh, say Help us to weigh up carefully the things that I'm saying. We pray for a powerful work of your spirit in us, that you would open our eyes to the truth. Uh, Father, for those of us who are despairing, please encourage us. Um, For those of us who are are seeking to understand, please give us understanding. For those of us who are doubting or or wavering, please strengthen and encourage our hearts. And we pray for your help and strength to do this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Uh, In our society, every census seems to point the same way, or it feels like it. Atheism, the belief that there is no God, is sharply on the rise, apparently. Belief in God seems more and more outdated and foolish, or at least we're trying to make it uh, feel that way. In Melbourne this decade, there's been the Australian Atheist Foundation, and they have joined forces with the Atheist Alliance International, and they established the Global Atheist Convention. The first convention tapped into the sharp increase in numbers of atheists and it was called the rise of atheism, the rise in the belief there is no God. It was a three-day affair and was attended by more than 2,000 people. The next conference was even more successful. It was called a celebration of reason. This seems to be the great achievement of atheism, that you can have a philosophy of life that is entirely based on reason and not any superstition or fantasy or anything like that that's completely reasonable. And so it was wildly popular. Um, The conference wasn't without sadness. The noted atheist Christopher Hitchens was to speak at the conference, but he tragically died of cancer. And so there was a tribute held in his honour. But with over 4,000 delegates attending, the convention was regarded as a great success. And so there was much excitement about the next convention. Um, Again, noted international speakers were snared for it, this time none other than Sir Richard Dawkins uh, and Salman Rushdie uh, for February next year. And the conference uh, seemed to be building so well on the previous conferences, getting the momentum. And the conference was called A Reason to Hope. And in November it was announced that the conference had been cancelled due to dismal ticket sales and lack of interest. You see, atheism might be rapidly on the rise. It might celebrate reason with the best money, uh, wine that money can buy. But here is the thing that atheism cannot offer, a reason to hope. And everyone knows that. Here is the ticket which nobody wants to buy. Here is a ticket that is not worth the paper that's printed on. Atheism, a reason to hope. Because everyone knows if you don't believe in God, there is no hope. And let's face it, who wants to spend three days staring in the eyeballs that if you don't believe in God, there is no hope? I mean, that is depressing. And so you can have the biggest speakers you like, but no one wants to buy that ticket. Just think about it. If we're all just a collection of atoms here, Maybe we're just using up our oxygen in a certain way. 
but then once we die, we just use it up sort of slightly differently. What hope is there? I mean, it's nonsense, isn't it? Now, at the moment, there's great fears that Kim Jong uh, Un uh, will fire a loaded nuclear missile, or Trump will beat him to it, or whatever. Um, understand India and Pakistan is actually the one they're more, even more worried about. But here's the question that atheists can't answer. Why does it matter? Like, really? Why does it matter? There's just a whole bunch of atoms. We're all just one big accident. Just a whole collection of atoms. Like, in a million years' time, they're all going to be organised differently. Like, who cares? Just smash a few nucleuses together and, you know, let's see what happens and wipe out a con. No, what does it matter? It's irrelevant. It's completely irrelevant. Atheism offers no reason to hope but only a life-sapping despair. You know when atheists write a book uh, trying to convince you to believe in atheism? It's very simple to deal with that. You just go, why are you bothering? What does it matter what I believe? It's completely irrelevant if there's no God. Believe whatever you like. It's irrelevant. Atheism offers no hope. If matter is all there is, then nothing matters. And that is just so brutal. That lack of hope just so leads to despair. That even the Global Atheist Foundation, you just can't stare that in the face. It is the brutal reality of atheism that atheists themselves can't even face. And so we eat, drink and be merry, for tomorrow we'll die. Eat, drink and be merry sounds like a good motto to live by and explains why our society is so wrapped up in materialism and eating the best stuff and, you know, stuffing your face with everything that, that tastes good and so on, tasting the delights of life, you know, kind of trying to run life as this perpetual bungee, bungee jump where the adrenaline just keeps rushing. But the problems begin once you start struggling to eat because of esophageal cancer or when you can no longer drink because you've got motor neurone disease. Uh, I realise this is a bit of ancient history for you, but last, last week marked 20 years since the tragic suicide of the lead singer of In Excess, Michael Hutchins. Um, he comes from the northern beaches of Sydney, went to a local high school near where uh, I grew up. Oh, I've actually served one of the members of In Excess at the shop. Um, he's uh, got about 10 years older than me, just kind of hit it on the big stage, all that sort of stuff. He lived a hedonistic life to the absolute full. You know, he dated Kylie Minogue, you name it. It all happened. But he had an accident just after, for, for about a month, in excess with the biggest band in the world, in 91 it was. Um, and after that, it was downhill. But he had a big accident. Um, and what it meant is he could no longer taste and he couldn't smell. And this was a guy who loved his wine. He loved his food. And so he could eat and drink. But it was no longer making him merry. And it was the beginning of the sad spiral of descent into depression for him. What do you do when you're not dead, but it's not so easy to eat and drink anymore? Or that's not making you merry any longer? Our society's answer, of course, is euthanasia. Literally, a good death. Assisted dying. And so it's no surprise that in Victoria, which has hosted the Global Atheist Convention... Euthanasia is about to become legal, medically assisted dying. Euthanasia is a very complex issue, of course, and there are understandable reasons in favour of it. But the great problem with saying that it's okay to legally assist someone in killing them uh, when eating and drinking and so on no longer makes you merry is, the great problem is, where do you stop? Where do you draw the line? So in Netherlands, they, they opened the door to this a number of years ago. Uh, euthanasia has been legal there for quite some time. And there was a woman uh, who had been sexually assaulted from the ages of 5 to 15. And so she had the ongoing trauma of that in her 20s with uh, post-traumatic stress disorder and so on. And so the decision was made to euthanise her because she had no hope. Um, and the decision was made, yep, that's fine to knock her off. Her psychiatrist said there's no hope for her. Um, and so she's just killed. It's a sick situation, isn't it? One man's philosophy is eat, drink and be merry. 
because tomorrow we die. So what that means for him is sexually abusing a kid because he feels like it. And what, is she, what hope is she offered in the Netherlands? What reason is she given to hope? None. Not given any. Since she cannot be merry, she's assisted to die. She's used, abused and discarded by a society that ruthlessly practices its philosophy. Eat, drink and be merry. And if you can't be merry tomorrow, we will help you die. It's brutal, isn't it? Uh, I'm from Melbourne, Victoria, that's where I was born and I have uh, that in common with Australia's leading philosopher, a man called Peter Singer. And he's the guy who's really been behind the whole medical push philosophically towards euthanasia. He argues in favour of it. Uh, he's, he's from a Jewish background, but he's an atheist. And so he, he's kind of a leading me- medical ethicist. And his whole thing is that this is how we should live life. We should look after, you, you might know about this, sentient beings. So if there's a rabbit, that can feel pain. So we should look after that. But an ant... An ant can't feel pain, so it's okay to squash an ant and so on. And then life sort of, you start talking about the quality of life. Is, is this person's life can't, can't actually have any quality to it, so it's actually okay to kill that person. And that's, that's his philosophy and so on. And, and he sort of brings that into medical ethics. You know why it's supposed to look after the rabbit and the whale and the sentient human being? You know why, according to Peter Singer? Well, because we're supposed to do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Do unto other sentient beings as you'd have them do unto you. But where does that come from? It doesn't come from atheism. <laughs> There's actually no grounds for that. It's Jesus who said that. It's actually the Old Testament of his ancestors where that comes from. And so he's come up with this whole philosophy, which our society is just hook, line and sinker, going for Peter Singer's ethic. That's why abortion's in the position it is. That's why euthanasia's just been legalised in Melbourne. But it's actually totally inconsistent and it's brutal and it offers no hope. And in the Netherlands, if you've been sexually assaulted and you're struggling to come to terms with that, well, then that's okay, we can bop you off. There is no reason to hope. In 1954, the uh, great Christian evangelist, Billy Graham, headed to England. A guy in the UK had tried to prevent him from going, saying he was an agent of the US government, but he was allowed in. It was before he was too well known. Um, the weather was dreadful. I mean, it's the UK, let's face it. <laughs> the weather's always dreadful. Um, so I was unsure. It didn't look like the campaign was going to be a great success. And yet it was a raging success. Thousands of people went. Actually, over the course of several months, two million people heard Billy Graham. Um, and the Prime Minister at the time was uh, Winston Churchill. He'd been Prime Minister during the war and he came back um, just around then as the Prime Minister again. And Billy Graham wanted to meet with him. And when he met with him, Mr. Churchill said to him, why is it, Mr. Graham, that so many people come to hear you preach? And Graham said to him very simply, Sir, I have a message of hope. Sir, I have a message of hope. There's the difference. Two million people going to hear Billy Graham and his message of hope. Christianity has its weaknesses, But here is its great strength. And if you're a Christian, brothers and sisters, this is a great strength. Better than you can imagine. It gives us a legitimate, entirely logical reason to hope. A legitimate, entirely logical reason to hope. My life, my my life, my wife, Melissa, uh, works in cancer care. (laughs) Anyway, you can do with that what you will. Um, She works in cancer care. Last July, she was heading off on holidays. Uh, On the Friday, she chatted to a colleague. Uh, He's one of these, you know, these lovely, friendly blokes. He's one of these people who, you know, they go mountain biking for 300 kilometres and all that sort of stuff. Exercise enthusiasts and all the rest of it. On the Sunday evening, he admitted himself to the emergency department in Christchurch. And after various tests, has discovered terminal cancer. Bang. So totally fine on Friday, chatting with a colleague, Sunday night, emergency department, terminal cancer. He's younger than me, I think. See, we're not talking about some abstract philosophy here, are we? This is not some abstract philosophy. 
where can hope be found? Where, where can any hope be found? Is there actually a legitimate, logical reason that we as human beings can have hope? The chapter of the Bible that we're looking at tonight is one of the great chapters. It truly is one of the great chapters of the Bible in which these reasons for hope are spelt out. The only hope for being lifted out of the despair caused by thinking about death, of course, is to have a real legitimate hope for life beyond death. The only hope for a better future that, that can overcome despair is to have this hope for life after death. And our passage tonight is in a series of passages that contain such a hope. In six short verses from 22 to 28, it describes the future of not, not just you and I, but actually the whole universe and of the overthrow of everything that brings despair in our world. Have a look at it with me in uh, chapter 15 and verse 22. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, afterwards at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, when he abolishes all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign until he puts his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be abolished is death. For God has put everything under his feet. But when it says everything is put under him, it's obvious that he who puts everything under him is the exception. And when everything is subject to Christ, then the Son himself will also be subject to the one who subjected everything to him, so that God may be all in all. Uh, these three, these uh, verses describe three events which together constitute a, a spectacular hope. The first event is described in verse 24 as the destruction of every power and authority and dominion by Jesus Christ. Jesus will conquer all and rule over all. Have you ever played that game of Connect Four? You know, you know the game? Um, the aim is to connect four things together. You know, you've got two people and you've got little tokens and you kind of pit against each other and your aim is to get four in a row. If ever you've done that, if you get to a point where you've got two sets of three that you can make four and the other person doesn't have any way of making four, you've won. Before the game finishes, if you've got two sets of three and you can put a four there and four there, it's great. You can just sit back and watch them sweat on it because you've won. It's the best time ever in Connect Four. You can just sit there, you know, do what you want with your token. It's game over, baby. We have won. The, the, the game's still on. The game's still happening. The opponent's still there. They know it's over. You know you've won. The game's still live. It's wonderful. It is, it is so good, Connect Four. According to the Bible, that is the point of history that we are at in this time. Jesus has won the victory. That's what happened when he died on the cross. He says it is finished. Game over. He's defeated Satan. It's all over. He's won. And to show you his run, he's been raised from the dead. And the Bible says God seated him in his right hand, which means he's sitting in the place of great power. He's been given all authority. So Jesus won. It's game over. Jesus has won the victory. He's got the two sets of three in Connect Four, if you like. And he's just sitting back like that. What's happening now? God the Father is bringing all things under his feet, under his rule and authority. That's what's happening in the whole universe. That's what's happening now in world history. And you say, well, hold on a second. What about these nuclear weapons? What about all the, the you know, there's the volcano going off or what? That's crazy. Okay. Well, this guy, Jesus, how many people were following him when he stretched out his arms on the cross and he said, it is finished? What was the number count of people who are under his feet at that point? Well, his disciples had all nicked off. There's a few women who are under his feet who are actually weeping and despairing and had no hope. He wasn't ruling over anybody. But have you noticed how many people are under his feet now? I mean, we actually can't count. And you know, how many people are under the lordship of Jesus in China? How many people are actually following Jesus in areas that were captured by ISIS? We've just seen eight people line up here. We're at the ends of the earth, folks. We've seen eight people line up here. And I know some of these people. is They were enemies of God a few years ago. And now they're saying, I just want to set time aside to follow the Lord Jesus. 
he, God has brought everything under his feet. He's bringing everything under his feet. That's what, where history is up to at the moment. And this is great news because the enemies of God, the enemies of Christ are the enemies of God. The enemies of God are those who have brought evil and injustice and sickness and suffering and death into our world. That's me. With my evil and my, my uh, rebellion against God, that's what brings the, the disaster that this world is. And Christ will ultimately destroy all those enemies and the last one to be destroyed is death itself. You'll actually destroy death. Get that. Now, there is a victory. <laughs> With these um, 12-year-old boys, you know what they're like, they're brutal. Um, but, but in Matthew 28, what do the disciples do? when they see the risen Jesus, they worship him. And I say to these guys, is that a legitimate thing to do? And they go, well, they might have mistaken him. Yep, okay. But if they saw him die, and then he's risen from the dead, is that, and that's him, and it's actually happened, is it legit to worship him? And they go, yeah. <laughs> that's the right thing to do, isn't it? If this guy has actually defeated death. And we're told in verses 24 and 28, Christ is going to do something. Having had all things brought under him so that he's Lord of all, Christ is going to come and he's going to lay his kingdom at at, uh, the feet of his father. Christ is going to subject all things to God the Father. So as verse 28 says, God will be all in all. God is going to be everything. He's going to be over everything in all the proper way. No longer will God be ignored or forgotten or rebelled against. There's not going to be any more atheist conventions. That's not going to happen. God will be treated as God by everyone rightly as he should be in the universe that he's made. And when that happens, those, everyone's going to be raised from the dead and those who don't follow Jesus are going to have to face the judgment. And those who do follow Jesus will be in a position where they'll be brought into a new age where every tear will be wiped away. There'll be no more sickness and suffering and death and all injustice will be done away with. Here is this glorious hope that Paul spells out for the whole universe. It's a hope that's so brilliant that it's able to outshine the darkness of any despair. And and I've, I've lived a charmed existence. I mean, I can say those words cheaply. But I can tell you, I know people who have suffered things that I don't even want to talk about worse than the stuff that I mentioned about the lady in the Netherlands. And yet they know this hope. And it gives them just great joy. (laughs) Now, and it's going to wipe away every tear in the future. It is truly spectacular. A world free from evil and its effects forever. But but the question is, isn't it, is, is this just wishful thing? I mean, it sounds awesome, but is it just wishful thinking? Is it just wishful thinking? How can we know that this is the future? And the rest of the passage deals with that. We see from verse 12 that what some people in Corinth were saying was that there is no resurrection of the dead. Now stick with me here, folks. Uh, Halfway through verse 12, Paul asked the question, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? Now when people were saying there's no resurrection of the dead, what they're meaning, they're not meaning that there's no life after death. That's not what they were meaning. What Paul meant and what was understood by these people then was resurrection meant coming back to life bodily as a human. So it's bodily, what we might call bodily resurrection. It was a hope that arose from the the part of the Bible written before Jesus in the Old Testament. So several passages like Psalm 16, Ezekiel 37, Daniel 12 spoke of bodily resurrection, people's bodies being raised from the dead. And in Daniel 12 particularly, it talked about all people at the end of time being raised bodily from the dead, some to judgment, and some to eternal life, but all were going to be raised bodily. And so from passages like that, the people of Israel had this belief that there would be bodily resurrection. It wouldn't just be sort of some spiritual thing, but that they, and their soul would live on, but their body would be raised. And what some people in Corinth had begun to say, and we imagine at that point they're being influenced by kind of Greek thought that saw the body, the flesh as bad. Um, so they're saying, no, no. It's just your soul's going to live on, but not your body. It's not going to be the resurrection from the dead like that. And it's that view that Paul's countering here, okay? And he does it in his typical, typical logical way. Seven times in the next eight verses, he says, if this is the case, then this is the case. If this is the case, then this is the case. 
And by doing this, he shows how wrong they were to say that there's no bodily resurrection. His arguments fall into two types. His first argument is, if the dead generally are not raised, then Christ hasn't been raised from the dead. He says this a number of times in these verses, most clearly in verse 16. If the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. Paul's argument here is pretty simple. Um, Jesus rising from the dead bodily and doing things like eating fish after he's risen from the dead, it's not some isolated incident. It's not just a historical one-off that's never going to happen again, but it's actually just part of an event. It's the first of a bigger event, which is the general resurrection. Um, it's a little bit like um, uh, my Melissa. We've just moved house and um, uh, we've kind of got this veggie patch that's all in the shade. And uh, the soil looks dreadful and all the rest of it. And I just think, well, no veggies here. A bit of a pity. Um, but yesterday, Melissa uh, uttered those wonderful words. We've got our first strawberry, which is great. Because you know, once you've got the first strawberry, what does it mean? Productory. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. <laughs> it means you're going to get a whole batch of strawberries. This is a productive veggie patch. And so it is with Jesus, his rising from the dead, his eating fish and bodily resurrection, that actually shows you the general resurrection is an event. This is the start of it, and it shows you that it's true. And so Jesus' resurrection shows that, yes, the general resurrection is going to take place. And this leads Paul to the second logical conclusion from what the people were saying uh, in Corinth. They were saying, if there's no general, general resurrection then Christ hasn't been raised. And if Christ hasn't been raised, in verse 14, Paul sums up his conclusions. If Christ hasn't been raised, then our preaching's useless and so is your faith. If you want a slightly different summary of what Paul's saying here, it's this. If Jesus Christ has not been raised from the dead, Christianity's a lie and it's a big fat waste of time. It's very simple. If Jesus hasn't raised from the dead, Christianity is just wrong. It's a lie. Um, there's a philosopher with the rather unfortunate name of Karl Popper. Um, I, I find that unfortunate if your surname was Popper. You know, anyway, maybe it's just me. Apologies if there's any Poppers here. You know, I think, he, I think Karl Popper actually came to Christchurch during the Second World War. You didn't need to know that, but it's true, I think. Anyway, um, he argued that for something to be scientific, um, you had to be able to falsify it. So you know the argument, oh, Christianity, it can't possibly be science. Can you falsify Christianity? Yes, you can. How? Well, Christianity teaches that all people are evil, that everybody is sinful except Jesus. So if you can find one person who is not sinful, who is not Jesus, oops, you've just disproved Christianity. So technically, actually, Christianity can be regarded as science. But anyway, that's a slight sidetrack. What about Jesus rising from the dead? Scientifically, can you show that? Well, it's an event of history. And events of history, they're a different kettle of fish, aren't they? So this morning I referred to man landing on the moon. And, you know, some people don't believe it. Some people do. Um, Most people do, I think. Uh, But that's the nature. You can't kind of repeat it, can you? It's something that happened. And either it did happen or it didn't. But it's not a sort of science experiment that you can just do again. And the claim of the Bible is that Jesus rising from the dead is a matter of history. And you can examine it and you can see whether or not it's true or false. But if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, very simple. Christianity is false. Must be. If at any point the opponents of Christianity in the early years could have produced the body of Jesus, Christianity would have been shown to be a fraud. If you look at the evidence of Jesus and you cannot accept that Jesus rose from the dead then you've got grounds for rejecting the Christian faith. Uh, I heard of someone who is claiming to be a Christian, but they don't believe that Jesus rose from the dead. Uh, that, no, that, that, that doesn't happen. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then you've got grounds to reject Christianity. Believing Jesus rose from the dead bodily, it doesn't actually necessarily make you a Christian. There are people who believe Jesus rose bodily from the dead, um, but don't believe he's the Messiah or don't believe he's the Son of God. But if you're wanting to examine Christianity and see whether or not it's true, a great place to start is look at, did this guy actually rise from the dead? Because if you think he didn't, then it's game over. Because if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then the news of Christ is useless and so is Christian faith. 
Why is it useless if Jesus didn't rise from the dead? Paul gives four reasons. The first is that Christian preaching and Christian faith would be useless, be futile, worthless, I think the um, translation has it. It wouldn't achieve what it's meant to achieve. Verse 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins. Uh, The passage uh, previous to this, which you heard from last week, talked about uh, that the matter of first importance of the Christian message is that Christ died for our sins so that we could be forgiven for the rebellion against God. By his death, he took the punishment for our sins to set us free from the power and the penalty of sin. But if Christ hasn't been raised from the dead, neither of those things are true. How do you know that that Christ has actually brought forgiveness? That that is, if you're speeding and you get kind of a thing that says you're speeding, you've got to pay a fine and you're right and you just say, I was speeding, so sorry, and you just ask for mercy. How do you know that you've been shown mercy? It's when you get the letter in the mail that says, okay, we're going to let you off. That's the letter in the mail. It tells you you've got mercy. Jesus' death is the thing that pays the penalty. But the resurrection is the letter in the mail. That's what tells you, yes, you, you, it's actually been paid. But it pays for the penalty, but it also pays for the power of sin. Now, we know the power of sin, don't we? <laughs> the power of sin is that within you and me which makes us do those things that we don't want to do, that we know are wrong and that we keep on doing. And that is powerful, isn't it? And actually that is so powerful that that's what drives some people to great despair because they know what they've done and they know how bad it is and they fear for what they could do and so on. Where can hope be found there? Well, the teaching of the New Testament is that the power that's at work in raising Jesus from the dead is also what's at work in those who believe in Jesus. And so as people who follow Jesus, we still have our sinful desires pulling us that way. We have this constant civil war, but we also have the spirit that is powerfully pulling us in this direction so that we can actually change. And so it break, Jesus' death breaks the, pa- the penalty and the power of sin and his resurrection shows it's true. But the message would not only u- be useless if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, it would also be evil. See, it's not just that Christianity wouldn't be true, but Paul in, and the apostles who he mentioned last week in verses 5, 7 and 11, that all be liars. And it's a massive falsehood which would bring them under the judgment of God. Paul uses the language here of the courtroom. And he says, if Jesus hasn't been risen from the dead, then we're all false witnesses. In other words, we will have given false testimony, which is against the Ten Commandments. It's punishable by death in the Old Testament. And so if this is a lie, this is evil. If Jesus hasn't risen from the dead, then the apostles and Paul, they've all lied under oath in court. They've given false evidence. And there can't be any more serious crime than that. It'd be a very strange crime for them to to commit, though. They all lost their life for their testimony, with the one exception of John. He just died in exile. He's the lucky guy. But everybody else died for their testimony. But the implications, if this is a lie, would be huge. Paul and the other apostles, um, if they'd made this whole thing up, the consequences for Christianity would be very simple. And that is, we can't trust the Bible very simple we can't trust the testimony of the apostles if jesus didn't rise from the dead Uh, what people say today is look we obviously can't believe all that the bible's saying about jesus miracles and his rising from the dead we obviously can't trust that but this is a very valuable book and it's got many wonderful things to say rubbish if jesus didn't rise from the dead this is deception (laughs) and this is actually manipulation and we just reject it it's completely wrong The reliability of the New Testament stands or falls on Jesus being raised bodily from the dead. But not only does the reliability of the New Testament depend on Jesus rising from the dead, so does all of our Christian hope. See, if Christ has not been raised, verse 18, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ, in other words, those who have died trusting in Jesus, they're lost. Probably the same point's being made in verse 29 when Paul asked the Corinthians why some of them have baptisms for the dead. Uh, Notice that in verse 30, he makes it clear 
that that's not what he does and he's not endorsing it. Um, But the very fact that the Corinthians were doing it, Paul's just pointing out that you're doing that, shows that you believe that there is hope for those who have died as Christians. And Paul says, no, you can't do that. It's just a sentimental hope if Jesus hasn't been raised. The same sort of thing would be like, and I'm sure you've had this experience, is people who say they don't believe in God or say that they're they're atheists or whatever, and then you go along to the funeral. And things are said like, well, they're in a much better place now. Or now they're truly happy. Or that's just bogus sentimentality. If you actually think there's no God, then bang, it's game over. They don't exist. And that is just so grim that it's hard to face up to. But don't give sentimental nonsense about, oh, they're all having a great party together now. No. If Jesus hasn't been raised from the dead, then none of that is the case. If Jesus hasn't been raised from the dead, well, you can forget about meeting that grandparent who trusts in the Lord Jesus or your best friend or that young child who died of leukemia or your former pastor, or your husband or wife who died in Christ, or all that, whoever it is, they're all lost if Christ hasn't been raised from the dead. And so lastly, Paul says in verse 19, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we're to be pitied more than all people. Some of us, I think, maybe too many of us, have grown quite used to being able to, to think that we can be a Christian and be as successful in this world as we want to be. Fulfill our worldly dreams. We tend to sort of think that Christianity is not only right, but it's also the best way to live, and that others living another way, ultimately that's not going to work out in this age. But we're going to be better off in this age if we follow Jesus. But we need to remember that nowhere does the New Testament promise that Christians will be happier healthier and wealthier than everybody else. That is not promised in the New Testament. This is what is promised to everyone who follows Jesus. Everybody who lives a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's what's promised, persecution. That is, as Christians, we have to face the fact that if we look at the world in terms of here and now, there are many Christians who frankly it would be far better off for them if they weren't. As they're locked up and beaten and killed, sometimes beheaded, as they're kidnapped, all sorts of horrible things, they would be better off in this age if they weren't Christian. And for some of us, we'll be poorer because we're Christian. We'll be discriminated against. We'll miss out on the job promotion or maybe not even be given the opportunity. Our children may be bullied at school. Um, there are pe- people who th- th- they'd love to be married and if they weren't Christian that'd be easy but actually living for Christ means getting married that's not going to happen it, it actually can be easier to not be a Christian and if Jesus hasn't risen from the dead well that's a big fat waste of time and sacrifices that aren't worth it and so it was for Paul look at verses 30 and 31 Why are we in danger every hour? I affirm by the pride in you that I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. If I fought wild animals in Ephesus with only human hope, what good did that do me? If the dead are not raised, let us eat, drink and be merry, for tomorrow we die. You you see, uh, Paul suffered greatly for his Christian faith. And here is a great truth for the majority of Christians throughout the world and throughout history And for many of us here tonight, of course. If there's no life after death, why bother making sacrifices for Jesus? Why bother being in danger? Why bother risk losing friendships for Jesus? Why risk job opportunities if there's no life after death? If the dead are not raised, well, we might as well be like everybody else. We might as well eat, drink and be merry because tomorrow we're going to die. That makes perfect sense if the dead are not raised. Verse 20, you'll notice, though, begins with the great word, but. That's one of the great buts of the Bible. 
If Christ has not been raised, our faith's pointless, the message of the gospel useless, the Bible can't be trusted, our hopes are fantasy, our lives are tragedies. But verse 20, Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive, but each to his own in turn. Christ the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. You see, Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. And so that just changes everything. It means there will be a resurrection of the dead for those who belong to him and they'll get to enjoy all the fruits of heavenly glory. He's the first fruits. He's the beginning of the resurrection. And his resurrection shows that all the others are going to take place. And so since Christ has been raised from the dead, the preaching of the gospel lives up to its promise. As the word is held out, it brings life. It does save from our sins. It does set people free from the power of the captivity of sin and death and judgment. Since Christ has been raised from the dead, the testimony of the witnesses is verified and the reliability of the New Testament is vindicated. Since Christ is raised from the dead, we have this wonderful, realistic hope of seeing our brothers and sisters in Christ again. We can trust our Lord Jesus who said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me will not die, but will live. And since Christ is raised from the dead, then Christians were not to be pitied for our hardships. It's those who may actually be healthy, wealthy, but have no hope who, in a sense, are to be pitied. Um, Our family had the privilege recently of um, going to Perth um, and we stayed in a six-star hotel. It's just insane. We were there for a week. And like, I mean, it was just palatial and mad, like just total madness. But, you know, I knew we're only there for a week. (laughs) And this is going to end. And actually, there's some things about the end of it that that were happening after that that I was actually quite worried about. And you know what? I would have traded the six-star palatial hotel for a caravan if things could be better afterwards. <laughs> and at people in our world who have got the six-star hotel life but no hope afterwards. No, we're better off in the caravan. We're not to be pitied. Um, Christians counted a privilege to be counted worthy of suffering for their Lord Jesus Christ. Those who suffer with Christ will also share his glory when he returns. And so here is the point upon which history and Christianity stands or falls. It's the rising of Jesus Christ from the dead. But notice verse 33, verse 33. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Come to your senses and stop sinning. For some people are ignorant of God. I say this to your shame. See, what's the great danger about the resurrection of Jesus from the dead? Being deceived and being misled into thinking it's not actually that important or it didn't actually happen. I've got a book here um, called Resurrection, Myth or Reality? A Bishop's Search for the Origins of Christianity. It's written by a man called Bishop John Shelby Spong. Um, He's an Anglican minister and I'm an Anglican minister. And in order to be an Anglican minister, every Anglican minister, they have to assent to the 39 articles, the 39 statements they have to assent to. Number six says that we believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus. And in this book, Resurrection, Myth or Reality, Bishop John Shelby Spong tells you why he doesn't believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus and why that's actually a myth. Now, I can understand why people might think that. I can understand why he might think that, but here's the issue. He's an Anglican minister. (laughs) He's actually said, I assent to the bodily resurrection. That's why he's called a bishop. It's deception, isn't it? Do not be deceived, is what Paul says. Do not be deceived. Paul, uh, Jesus has risen from the dead. Uh, The greatest theologian of the 20th century, when he was on his deathbed, Uh, He was German, and there was the guy who translated his work into English who was with him as he was dying. And the man said to him, mark this, bodily resurrection. You can be the greatest theologian in the world, but as you're on your deathbed, what actually matters is this glorious hope 
of bodily resurrection. Uh, Billy Graham was a great salesperson. Um, before he became the great evangelist that he was, he, was, uh, he used to sell uh, brushes and uh, he was the leading salesperson in his area. He's just a natural salesperson. Um, my Melissa is a hopeless salesperson. Um, she can sell stuff on Trade Me, but that's it. Um, she really cannot, she's really bad. Um, but I reckon the Global Atheist Convention should employ her because she's done a better job than they have at selling. Let me tell you about it. So she works in cancer care and there's this book that she reads. It's called Hope Beyond Cure. It's written by a guy who's not unlike Rowan. Uh, he went to Canberra and he planted a church in Canberra called Crossroads and he worked there for about 20 years or so. Uh, and then he, he finished there and he thought, I want to go and do the same, and his, with his wife as well, want to go and do the same thing in Darwin. So they headed off to do that. But in between finishing at Crossroads and heading up to Darwin, he was diagnosed with terminal cancer. And he got that terrible diagnosis of it's going to end more quickly than you thought. Um, and so he wrote this book, Hope Beyond Cure, for the great hope that comes through knowing the Lord Jesus. And my Melissa, working in cancer care, reads this book and just goes, I want everyone in my department to read this book. I want everyone to know this. But she's not Billy Graham. <laughs> she is a lousy salesperson. And so she cries over her friends who don't know Jesus and I, I can't tell these people and so on. And then her colleague gets diagnosed with cancer. You remember, she goes on holidays on July and on the Sunday he's diagnosed with terminal cancer. And so I, don't, I can't even remember how she did it because I, I don't think she could actually face him and give him the book, but she just wanted to get the book to him. So I think she just left it in his pigeonhole and saying, dear such and such, um, pl oh, please read this, I'm really sorry about your diagnosis. It leaves it at that. Doesn't ever even talk to him about it or anything. Can't, can't raise it with him. Terrible salesperson. Um, anyway, so he uh, is sadly coming to the end of his, uh, his life and uh, he gives a talk to the whole oncology department down in Christchurch Hospital. It's called My Journey with Cancer. And he's a well-known colleague and everyone's grieving, of course. He's a lovely guy and everyone's grieving. And so the uh, whole department turns up to hear this guy talk about his, his journey with cancer. And fairly early on, he says, you know, uh, Melissa left this book in my pigeonhole. <laughs> it's called Hope Beyond Cure. Hey, you all should read this book. This is absolutely fantastic. This is why I'm not worried about dying. This is just awesome. This is a great book. And I actually have no fear that when I die, because I'm going to meet with God and I know it's all taken care of. And even though things are pretty dreadful now, actually it's going to be fantastic in the future. You should read this book. And, and so, you know, this book, you can get this book anywhere in all the second-hand bookshops around here. It's just rubbish. You know, books like that come and go. They're just regurgitating German theology of two centuries ago. They're just rubbish. Okay. But hope beyond cure, Melissa's been taking orders from all the people in her department and she's getting copies in. That's why I actually don't have a book because she's gotten rid of all the copies of hope beyond cure to everyone in her department. Not everyone, sorry, to people in her department. She, she's been selling tickets to that like they couldn't sell for the atheist convention. Why? Well, any salesperson will tell you, if you've got a good product, it sells itself, doesn't it? You can be the world's lousiest salesperson. I know because she's my wife. <laughs> she is. And yet there they are queuing up to get the book and she's passing them out in spite of herself. Why? Well, why is it that someone who has actually studied for longer than most of you have been alive, this guy who is a highly intellectual Western, but why? Because there is a logical, rational reason that is realistic to hope and staring in the face of a diagnosis that he knows better than anybody else what it actually means is he heading off to the global atheist convention no way he is reading hope beyond cure and he's telling his whole department to read it as well and when i said to melissa would you mind actually texting him so i can have permission to be able to pass that on up in auckland he texts back and he says you tell you say yes he can pass on the hope hope beyond cure and so the question for us is is this our hope is it your hope jesus has been raised from the dead what that means according to the bible is you're going to be raised from the dead all of us i am the question is are we going to be raised to judgment 
Or are we going to be raised to eternal life, which means having every tear wiped away and all sickness and suffering and death dealt with and having the Lord Jesus wipe our tears away himself? Is that your hope? I know we've talked about philosophies tonight and Karl Popper and all that sort of stuff. But it's Sunday night. What happens if you go to the emergency department? It's not some abstract philosophy, folks. This is you. I'm flying home tonight and I hate flying. I pray every single time I take off and every single time that I land. I have a fear of flying. And, you know, I can be going through times of doubt and struggles as a Christian and so on. Let me tell you, every time the plane takes off, no, there's a hope beyond cure here. What about for you? Is this your hope? Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Is that your hope? Let's pray. Loving Father in heaven, we praise you that you are so ridiculously powerful that you use weakness and show your great strength. That in the weakness of some peasant being nailed to a Roman cross, that you would choose to use that to save the world and that you would raise him from the dead and demonstrate your power. That you would use the weakness of someone who can't speak. Father, we praise you for your great power. Please help us, we pray. We pray for those of us who aren't sure what we think about the resurrection of Jesus. Hopefully from tonight we pray that it would be clear just how important this event is. Please help those who are still investigating whether Jesus rose from the dead. Please give them integrity and a humility. And please open eyes so that they may see the truth about the Lord Jesus. Father, for those of us who know this great and glorious hope and are convinced of it, Please help us to live for this Lord Jesus. Help us to turn from those things which are evil. Help us not just be wanting to eat and drink and be merry selfishly, but help us be wanting to serve others that they may know of this great and glorious hope that we have. This hope which gives us a hope beyond cure. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.